Leaving a Legacy is brought to you by hipstersofthecoast.com and can be found on the Top Deck app every Friday. You can support the show directly at patreon.com slash leavingalegacy. Magic is power. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leaving a Legacy. My name is Patrick. I'm your legacy newbie, and with me this week, as always, Mr. Jerry Me, What's up, Jerry? Not much, Pat. Just hanging out. How you doing? Man, I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I uh, had a great weekend. Uh, it's been, uh, the weather up here has been real nice, so I've been enjoying myself. How about you? Oh, same, same here. Uh, I heard you played a little Magic Online, though. Me? Yeah. No. So you just you barred my Magic Online account just to not play it. <laughs> yeah, I did not get a chance. No, this week. It's, oh boy, it's been crazy, man. With the with the kids having soccer and stuff, and then Saturday night went out to a friend's house for uh, for an evening, and uh, so that was that was my free time. I didn't realize that we had plans. So <laughs> unfortunately, I don't, I'm not the only one who has access to my social calendar. <laughs> so you were gonna play some Magic Online, and then your wife uh, your wife said no, sir. Yeah, but but it's actually cool because the, one of the kids I was hanging out with uh has recently got back into magic uh oh. I, it was the guy i was telling you about actually so that's cool that's yeah cool. yeah he's like he's like hey do you know this thing there's this thing called arena i was like yeah <laughs> i know about arena <laughs> <laughs> nice are your kids still playing magic uh liam he, i haven't played with liam in quite a while he was actually asking about it recently so we'll have to strike it up again but yeah for sure yeah they luke wants to luke wants to play too and he's actually become a pretty great reader so he's probably ready to start playing as well so maybe i get them playing with each other that'd be even better oh there you go take myself completely out of the equation just give him a bunch of just give him a bunch of draft commons and uncommons and like let give him a few rubber bands and ziploc bags and just let him go at it no what you need to do pat is you need to make them your own personal testing team for tournaments you just got to make a bunch of proxy decks <laughs> and then for 10 hours a day just have them play them against each other and record i mean results. it couldn't it couldn't be any worse than my own testing for <laughs> so <laughs> uh, awesome uh unfortunately my most of my magic experience this past week is when cataloging my collection i'm finally oh. taking the step and it's miserable just you know typing away at the computer going card by card and mm-hmm. sorting them but Oof. i know it'll pay off in the long run. i have stacks of cards i i can't even show you this room because it's absolutely it's just a mess and i have stacks of cards everywhere they're in, they're they're they've invaded my bedroom like my they're on my bureau my dresser like i've opened like a whole open case of uh of uh what was it that that set that just came out time spiral remastered i have a whole box of that opened up in my bedroom and then a few more like draft packs that opened up in there and it's just it's just a mess it's a mess so it's important to do though because like i'm going through and like some of these cards that you wouldn't expect or we're so like like parallel lives is like a 70 dollar rare now dude like, i remember null that... rod null rod is insane right now yeah i it's remember crazy. these things being like picking them out of like the 50 cent bin so mm-hmm. like i have the stack of like bulk and it's like all right 10 cents 10 cents 10 cents 80 dollars okay yep. 10, yep. 10 cents 10 cents <laughs> are you like putting up an excel spreadsheet or so I'm using TCG's player, TCG players tool. They have a okay. little thing where you can like, it's basically an Excel spreadsheet, but it's tied in. So it automatically updates the prices. Yeah. If I was actually like good at Excel, I could probably do that myself using Excel spreadsheets, but gotcha. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant. That's essentially what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. No rod market price is up to $176 right now. 
I think that's actually down. I think it was like over 250 for a it while. It was, it was, but that is insane. Like that's crazy. Yeah. So oh that's, that's been most of my magic experience, but that's okay. Yeah. Not much has happened in magic news this week. Yeah. But <laughs> we have an awesome episode nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. Why don't you introduce our guest this week, Jerry? Cause it's been a minute. It's been a hot minute, and I am super excited to have him back on. We have resident legacy historian, keeper of the books and records and tales of your Mr. Adam Barnello. How's it going, man? Very good. Thank you. Awesome. It's been a while. Uh, we were looking. It was about two years ago. Two years. That's yeah. crazy. How has it gone? It's been that long. It's insane. Uh, to be fair, the last year has been like the hyperbolic time yeah, it's, chamber. It's been March 2020 for like 14 months. Now, so. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. So really, it's only been a year. Right. It's only been a year, which is an appropriate amount of time. <laughs> but uh, Adam, uh, this is your fourth or fifth time coming on the podcast as our resident legacy historian. Uh, you've done a bunch of episodes in the past where we've kind of taking a look at an archetype we did the reanimator and blue white control and then also another episode on just combo in general and we've just kind of followed their progression through the history of legacy and we figured you'd be the best person to have on for today's episode which is another history episode from a kind of different perspective but uh tell tell the listeners kind of a little bit about yourself and your uh your legacy chops oh geez okay uh so so if I'm if I'm considered the legacy historian, it's only because I'm old. Um, <laughs> uh, I started playing legacy short after, or, well, I guess shortly before it turned into legacy. Um, the the area that I live in, Syracuse, New York, we had a pretty robust type 1.5 scene, uh, which was what legacy was prior to the the band list being split from the vintage uh, restricted and band list. So uh, once that split happened, a lot of that old guard decided that they weren't really interested in playing this new format, but some of us stuck around with it and started playing it right off the bat. Uh, we did a lot of hosting of events in the area. We, we traveled quite a bit to go to kind of DIY uh, weekend events in like Boston and Connecticut and Virginia, uh, Northern Virginia. Um, so the whole like Northeastern U.S. had quite a bit of action and activity in the early days of Legacy. Uh, through that, I was also uh, a moderator and then eventually an administrator on the source. So I was very involved in the early development of the format through that, mm -hmm. uh, as well as basically just doing a lot of shit posting on the Internet. <laughs> um, and eventually I got... Uh, asked to be a part of a group of people who were writing uh, a weekly legacy article for star city games. Uh, when one of the other admins on the source stepped down uh, from his position and writing there. So that was kind of how I got my start writing. Uh, and then did that for a little while, took a break, came back into the writing scene right when channel fireball was kicking off and they mm -hmm. didn't have anybody on staff writing about legacy at that time. So I posted, put a, uh, resume in essentially to the editor and i wrote for star city for like six five six seven years something like wow. that uh, a weekly legacy column with them uh eventually became an adult <laughs> <laughs> uh despite being an adult this whole time i i actually <laughs> became an adult uh and just didn't have time in my portfolio anymore to dedicate as much to that 
uh, as well as just you know waning interest in in some of the aspects of the format uh it got to be a lot to keep up with mm-hmm. and i had the fortunate uh privilege of making the pro tour a couple of times and suddenly my focus was no longer really on the format that i can't make the pro tour on um mm. so so once that happened i i kind of took a step back from writing and then eventually took a step back from magic entirely um for a couple of years and then relatively recently i guess like within the last four or five years uh kind of came back into it as a much more casual player mm-hmm. uh, trying not to focus on the competitive side of things uh, and actually started doing cosplay as well magic cosplay so oh, yeah some of your some of your listeners probably recognize me from that more than they do from my legacy writing yeah you um got- the sweet loxodon cosplay yeah and... yeah i've done quite a few of them at this point yeah i think last time it was i had only done like maybe a few of them um mm-hmm. last time i was on the show but it's been a long couple of years yeah <laughs> so i've done quite a bit more since then yep yeah i saw it i saw you at uh was it gp niagara i forget which event it was niagara but, falls uh, yeah. yeah gp niagara you had a couple cosplays there it was, yeah it was i did the i did the fibble thip the lost cosplay there that yep <laughs> that was a lot of fun um, probably the most fun I've had at a Grand Prix, which is weird because I've been to a lot of Grand Prix and I've played in a lot of Grand Prix and I would say that I enjoyed them, but I probably would not say that I had fun. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's true. Yep. Even when you're winning, even if you cash, it's not necessarily fun. Um, but I found that I'm uh, enjoying the experience of being a magic player at events a lot more when I'm not focused on the competitive side of things. Um, So, you know, just like hanging out and meeting new people and playing, you know, side events, playing commander, like that kind of stuff is a lot more enjoyable way to spend the weekend, even if it's not necessarily like giving me scratching that hyper competitive itch that still Mm -hmm. is there. Yep. Definitely. And then uh, one other thing I just want to bring people's attention because it's still a great read to go back and read it. You uh, you wrote a very good uh, history of legacy series. Uh, was that about 10 years ago now? How long? Yeah, ago it's got to be 10 years plus. I think I think I started it in 2009, maybe mm-hmm. 2010. Yep. And I, I came back to it every few months or so for probably close to a couple of years. Yeah. So there's like seven or eight installments that i wrote and then there's a couple more that were written by another uh legacy aficionado after i stopped writing wow so that yeah i really recommend anyone who's uh really interested in today's episode topic and doing a a dive into uh the yesteryear of uh legacy i would uh seriously recommend checking out adam's uh old uh, articles because they are great great to read um i still go back and read them sometimes (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so really really recommend uh checking those out uh just you know honestly just google adam barnello's name and it uh it comes up they're a great article series and we're going to kind of dive into this on today's episode and honestly i don't think we're going to be able to fit everything into one episode so we're gonna (laughs) we're probably gonna have to have you come back on in uh, a later episode to kind of continue this because hopefully before a couple years from now right yeah definitely sooner (laughs) definitely sooner. Yeah, tune back in in 2023 for the conclusion (laughs) 
uh, and also just an early shout out to uh, our listener Raymond Van, who actually suggested this topic. Mm-hmm. He posted on the Facebook group uh, that he was really interested in kind of the metas of old legacy and you know what it looked like. So we're gonna fulfill that today and do a kind of a deep dive and take a look at what legacy looked like. And what I think is what most people consider the dividing line of legacy right before Innistrad came out. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of view that as the, uh, you know, the ADBC split of legacy kind of before Delver. I thought you just had a stroke trying to repeat your ABCs, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. As in like, you know, I get it. Dividing, I get it. dividing of the calendar. You it, know? It's interesting because I have zero interaction with this, with this, uh, you know, variety of legacy. Like I didn't start playing legacy until 2015. So I, you know, I've only known. I like from... that you've been playing Legacy for six years, and you're still called the Legacy movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, and podcast. I was actually thinking, I was thinking as I was doing the this intro this week, uh, t- today especially, I'm like, uh, why do I don't even know why I start the podcast off? Jerry's the one who's been here longer than me, but I'm welcoming Jerry to the podcast. I don't know why I do that. I've been doing that for years now, but that's just the that's just the way we're in it. And someone asked me when I'm when I'll no longer be the Legacy newbie. And uh, that's when they when someone prized that title for my cold dead hand. <laughs> awesome. So yeah. So Pat, this is gonna be awesome for you. You have no context about what this looks like. So I'm yep. I'm interested to see what kind of your modern day take on these uh, past events is. I'm definitely gonna offer all the insight that I can muster. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Mostly, I just want you to say it's like, why would anyone play this terrible card? <laughs> Don't they know Delver exists? Yeah, don't they know Delver exists? (laughs) Well, not yet. Uh, But yeah, as I was saying, most people consider it kind of the dividing line. Uh, You know, there's actually a huge, well, I wouldn't say huge. There's a very devoted uh, pre-Innistrad legacy uh, group online who play specifically legacy uh, but only allowing cards prior to Innistrad. Uh, it's a, it's a popular format. That's so weird. That's so weird that that's popular. I know. I mean, like personally, I think that's awesome. And like, that's the kind of format that would appeal to me, but it's (laughs) such a strange like (laughs) niche to carve yourself. We're in a niche format of a niche game and we're going to make an even niche. When you you think (laughs) about it, like, like even something like EDH, that is like, uh, very like a very different way of playing like uh you know a multiplayer game but that became something huge you know people love people love customizing you know the way they play they for interact sure. with magic you know and for like, sure yeah it's like it's like the old school players like was, right there's like the thriving yeah. old school community yes that's exactly what i was gonna exactly. say which is like 90 like percent of the reason why alpha and beta cards are astronomically expensive <laughs> now well that and like that and i heard that drug dealers are putting their assets into it but that could i could be mistaken oh <laughs> uh, you're not uh, i was talking to, i was talking to my buddy because i just started getting in on robin hood and just uh doing a lot of investing not a lot i shouldn't say a lot of but messing around with, with some meme meme cryptocurrencies and whatnot and uh i was like man i should have just taken this money and invested in, in reserve list cards because those never lose yep. <laughs> yeah i i I, I only know scratching the surface of some of this stuff, but magic cards are a good cash business. Yes. Yeah. Where you can very easily mask the value of the things that you're buying and selling. And that's yep. all I'll say about that. Yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. Completely agree. Uh, stolen art and magic cards, uh, like Pablo Escobar had a bunch of black lotuses <laughs> in the, uh, <laughs> the bank. Hey, man, everybody's into it now, right? 
we got we got Post Malone buying Alpha Lotuses allegedly. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Somebody somebody mentioned oh. that. You know, uh, we sp- they think that he's the one that spent the like five hundred and eleven thousand dollars on the Alpha Lotus. We yeah. spent how many years did we spend getting like uh, trying to like rehab the image of the magic player, and then Post Malone comes in and starts Whoa. playing magic. You don't shit on Posty. Posty's <laughs> Listen, my boy. Love his music. Love his music. But is that the ambassador I want for the game? Sure. Uh, no. Sure. No. Why not? So the thing I don't is want like... someone who's sponsored by Bud Light to be playing magic. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That's exactly what you want, man. The, the faster, <laughs> the faster that it becomes a mainstream thing. First of all, the more expensive the cards you already own are going to be, Ugh. and and second of all, the less weird it's going to be, right? Like we've experienced that. I'm sure all of us have across our life, or probably our adulthood, right, where we were completely ostracized as children because yeah. of nerdy stuff, right? And now, like the five biggest franchises in film and television pop culture are all nerd enterprises, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the most money that's ever been made or spent on a TV show is a George RR R. Martin franchise. Mm-hmm. And the Marvel cinematic universe is the biggest bankroll in the history of television and film. So like, why wouldn't we want that? The, <sighs> the, I, you know, I'm willing to slog through a million of the dungeons and dragons movie if it gets us a really badass, awesome planeswalker film, you know what I mean? Like I, I want that and attention from people like post post Malone is exactly the way to get there. Yeah. But it's more, it, but, but you, you, you missed the point that it's way funnier to complain about post Malone being magic player. <laughs> I don't know. I'm really excited for that game nights. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm it's gonna sure be it's awesome. gonna be awesome. I mean, he seemed like, all right, in full, in a full honesty, it seems, it seems like a great move that someone like that. I mean, like I was, I was pumped when Cassius Marsh was playing magic and like, I was a little, little disappointed that like wizards gave him like a few thousand dollars worth of worth of cards because he lost his legacy elves deck. But, you know, like, like like out of all people who need like help getting their magic collection back, he's probably the least likely. But TR, it was TR, a great PR friend. move. Yeah. Great PR move. I did. I did love though. though. I saw one like it was like Vanity Fair article and it was like Post Malone spends over a thousand dollars on magic. <laughs> and all, uh, all the players are like them rookie numbers. Yeah. Like pump them numbers. Yeah. Up. The, those meme, <laughs> the memes from Wolf of Wall Street were so good. <laughs> There was a picture of him and he had like six dual lands sitting on a table, one of which was black bordered. And I'm just like, that's already more than a thousand dollars. Yeah. Like, what was he just looking at those? <laughs> Dude has like five songs where he's like, my car is worth a hundred thousand dollars and my watch is worth fifty thousand dollars. I think the dude can afford to play magic. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that is a, a nice little aside into modern day magic. Let's let's. Yep. Re- is it though? <laughs> I I love Posty. Yeah, Sunflowers no. a jam. Sunflowers. Uh, his hit. Uh, he is a he is a fantastic songwriter for sure. Does a great job. I would I would tell I would tell Justin to splice it in here if I didn't know it would result in our episode getting taken yeah. down. Yeah, we've gotten all. Yeah, just as FYI, if everyone's looking for like the the first like 150 episodes, uh, they've all been removed from like Spotify, all the streaming platforms, just because uh, we used to do the song game. So whoever's idea that was and forced us to play songs at the end of every episode. Uh, you can't find. I mean, the old episodes are all trash anyway. I mean, the new episodes are also trash, but uh, you can't find them anyway. <laughs> this one's great, though. <laughs> this, this is the best one. one. This, this is the best, best one. We're turning over newly for this episode. Oh man! Well, let's let's rewind the clock a decade. Let's go back to 
Good old uh, September of 2011. So September 30th, 2011, Innistrad was released and it pretty much changed legacy and magic in general. You know, we got uh, Delver of Secrets, obviously, but also things like Snapcaster Mage and uh, less important now, but was huge at the time. Liliana of the Veil was another powerful card. It basically just kind of changed the entire face of uh, what magic looked like and kind of many people consider it to be the ushering in of the modern design of magic where, you know, creature spells were more important, uh, eventually leading to wizards uh, fire game design, which has been kind of lamented over the last couple of years. But none of that has happened yet it's all a dream wake up we don't have any of that to worry about we're looking at uh you know 2011 and before what kind of legacy looked like so before we dive into the the pre-innistrad stuff i, I do just want to make a couple of notes about innistrad sure itself uh so first of all delver secrets secrets was a really interesting card um because i think that uh, most people who were writing about magic at that time kind of overlooked it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the focus was very, very heavily on Snapca- Snapcaster Mage. Mm-hmm. It was by far the card that was expected to be the breakout hit from Innistrad. Um, not necessarily even just in Legacy, but basically in all the formats that it was legal and vintage. Mm-hmm. Everybody was, you know, getting their rocks off on thinking about flashing back Ancestral Recall or Time Walk. Um, both of which are really good still, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do that in Vintage Cube as much as possible. <laughs> um, but but Delver of Secrets, because it was more of a build-around card, uh, I don't think that it was as prominent in the conversation at that point. Um, I remember I wrote um, an article, and if anyone is looking for it, I believe the title of it is Darts Innistrad, which is a palindrome. Um I wrote that uh, I thought it was the sleeper hit of the set because brainstorm exists, ponder mm-hmm. exists, right? Yeah. So it, it was already, it was going to very easily replace nimble mongoose and all of the grow shells where people are already running an artificially low land count mm-hmm. uh, using cantrips in the place of, of lands in their mana base. It seemed really obvious that it was going to fit in there, but at the time we didn't really know how ubiquitous it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really know what the best, uh, set of colors for that shell was going to end up. Um, there were still a lot of people playing rug at the time, um, as well as Bant, and and it wasn't it wasn't guaranteed that that was going to end up being you know um, the idea of running like dark confidant aside uh, by its side that was very appealing. Um, so there was a lot of takes on that very early on in the format. And it, it's interesting you call Delver of Secrets a build around card because I you don't really consider it being a build around card because well, it, the, <laughs> the inclusion of like the cantrip cartel and force of will is just so automatic that like it just seems like it just it just fits together in like that tempo shell. But like but really, I mean, it, it is right because the, the math has been done and like you need a X amount of instant sorceries to reliably fl- flip your turn one or turn two Delver. Right. So. Well, that that's just I think that just goes to show you just how warping a card like Delver Secrets is right. to the legacy yeah. meta because yeah. people didn't think about that. Like what we take now as second nature and like ingrained in every legacy player's deck building philosophies, they didn't even consider 
prior to Innistrad. Right, right. Like no one, no, no one was wondering how many instants or sorceries you had in your deck before Delver was printed. Well, right. kind of. I mean, so the grow, the grow shell has yeah. been there since you know the early two thousands. Yeah, for, thresh, um, for thresholds. Exactly for... right. So you you still had cantrips for um, for Nimble Mongoose for mm. Werebear. Yep. Um, you know, and, and the threshold creatures that were present in those decks prior to that. But whereas Nimble Mongoose requires you to do things like run Mental Note in order to dump a whole bunch of cards and get velocity that way, mm-hmm. uh, it it's almost incidental that you're going to have a 3-2 with evasion mm. uh, rather than a 3-3 that you can't interact with. Mm-hmm. So um, there were there were definitely decks that were taking advantage of that. But you're right to say that the the calculations really weren't there in the same way. Because, again, it was part of the mana base, right? So you need to know how many one-drop cantrips you're running in order to utilize, like, an 18-land mana base in a 60-card deck. But you you weren't necessarily thinking about it from the perspective of, like, critical mass of instance for some reason. Right, right. Um, whereas this, you know, it, it seemed like it was the most obvious fit uh, for for Delver to fit into. And then like very, very early on when testing started to happen with that, it became patently obvious that that card was way better in almost every instance than like nimble mongoose was. Hmm. And that running it alongside lightning bolt, you're like, all right, well, this is insane. Like you, you're just going to have like nine damage by turn four off of this one flyer. And then a couple of bolts and, you know, maybe some chip and, fetch lands and force rules and stuff but mm-hmm. it, it's it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. um and, and, it, I, and it just brought things to a level that a lot of decks that took a lot more time to set up with just could not compete with definitely and i i think that really shows in uh kind of the de- deck constructions so if you kind of look at a modern day rug deck it's going to be all four ofs you know Four Delver, four Brainstorm, four Ponder, four Landing Bolt, four Days, four Force of Will. Just like it's perfectly tuned. Going back and going down, you know, trip down memory lane, looking at all these deck lists from a year ago. It's just to, it's awesome to see how many like one ofs and three ofs and two ofs. Uh, the decks were a lot more fluid. It feels like so. Let's let's take a look. I have pulled up here. Um, Basically, the last major tournament before uh, Innistrad was released, it was uh, Star City Games Atlanta. Uh, it took place on September 11th, uh, 2011. It was about, uh, you know, 19 days before Innistrad was released. And let's go through and take kind of a, a look at the top eight here. Uh, but just to really button up my point from before, the the rug deck that we're going to take a look at, it's just full of three drops and one drops. Like it is it is definitely lots of kind of spicy one ofs and, and other things. But taking a look for the top eight, we had Dredge, Merfolk, Stoneblade, Zoo, Ancestral Rug, Rug Order, Blue Black Merfolk, <laughs> which is awesome, and then uh, Esper Stoneblade were uh, were the top eight of this event. So, a- an important factor to to mention during this, I guess, um, era. It, it was not a very long era of legacy, uh, like post new Phyrexia pre Innistrad, right? Mm-hmm. 
is that mental misstep completely warped the format to a major, <laughs> yes. major degree, mm-hmm. right? Um, Source to Plowshares was unplayable. Sensei's Divining Top was unplayable. Uh, it, there were there were people who were playing one drops, but it was really like um, you you were very careful about what one drops you were going to commit to mm-hmm. <laughs> because there were four mental missteps miss, missteps in like literally every deck. Yep. Yep. Even the ones that weren't necessarily playing blue. I, I remember when I first realized mental misstep was a problem was when I saw elves run for mental misstep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like not even splashing tropical Island or anything, just straight up, just running for mental misstep. And I'm like, okay, this is probably a card getting banned. <laughs> so, well, yeah. if so, I know, I know we're not talking about that format right now, but, or that, that tournament right now, but one of the, one of the hallmarks of, the Grand Prix that we will be talking about shortly, I think, <laughs> is that the winner, James Rinkowitz, uh, he was playing, uh, I think, Bant Natural Order, mm-hmm. no Force of Wills, right? Mm-hmm. Was playing a blue deck, no Force of Wills, because he didn't need them, because Mental Misstep countered all the stuff he cared about. Interesting. Huh. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, well, it, so this is a very specific period of uh, Legacy's history when mental misstep is legal, and things just get a little crazy. Yeah, uh, but let's let's take a look at the uh, the winning deck of Dredge by uh, Michael Morrissey, which it's hilarious. I love going back through all these old tournaments and seeing all these old Legacy player names like Sam Ruckus, also top eighted, Michael Braverman. Yep. Uh, it just it's awesome seeing all the old names. Here's a quick question: so like. In the, uh, I'm just looking at this this blue black merfolk list, right? So like, brainstorm still a super super powerful card at this time, right? But like merfolk's not running it. Merfolk never ran brainstorm, but yeah. they're also not running like they're also not running uh, like they're running vials with it. I don't see any uh any chalices. So it like did that force out like like the brainstorms and ponders? There were out, there were no the chalice of the voids in that format. Because why would you play Chalice on one when you can just run Mental Misstep instead? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Merfolk in particular got really prominent at that point mm-hmm. because they had access to four Mental Misstep and uh, Force of Will and Days, just yep. like any of the other blue decks yep. did. But because their mana base was a lot better, they could run Wasteland still. Um, so they got to play a lot of the same game that delver will eventually play mm-hmm. uh but didn't have to rely on like crappy creatures to get yeah. there they they just tried to overwhelm you with with a critical mass of of uh of merfolk lords and and also worth noting is that um i i could be wrong i gotta remember for sure um but i feel like one of the one of the merfolks was like relatively recent addition to the format um, but I don't remember which one it was. And and I could be completely wrong about that because most of them, I think, were in like lower wind. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was Coral Helm Commander had like come out within the, like a couple of years of that. And it, and it made the deck take off quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, but I remember that Merfolk also performed relatively well at that um, at that Grand Prix. Let, let's just take a look at the blue back Merfolk decks and Pat since Pat just shoehorned it in there. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> who, who says anything about order? <laughs> um, one thing I also want to point out about this Mer, uh, Merfolk deck that tells, says a lot about kind of the meta it was played in is in the sideboard, 
old favorite baby yeah tower of the magistrate i remember tower being hot shit back in the day so for those who don't know it's a lands card from mercadian masks it has tap out a colorless mana to your mana pool or it has one tap target creature gains protection from artifacts until end of turn so this was (laughs) specifically for batter skull yeah it was it was a it was a laser focused sideboard card which i'll be honest with you i'm not completely you know sure that it was really worth the sideboard slot that it was taking up but <laughs> well not but just stone that. blade was so good it was so good when mental misstep was legal <laughs> yeah. that that it was like if you don't have a plan for this you are in trouble yeah yep. i remember so many people look at tower for the first time they're like why would anyone ever play this card and then you realize you can you can give a creature, including your opponent's creatures, protection from artifacts. Oh which means yeah, their equipments fall off. Which also not just Batter Skull, but also like Sword of Fire and Ice and sure. Mizawa's Jitte. But Batter Skull especially because you you put it on the germ, and now the germ's a zero zero, and it yep. dies. Yep. So it effectively neuters Batter Skull. Um, but yeah, Tower was a super hot sideboard card in this era, like Adam said, just because Stoneblade was so popular. Mm-hmm. I would say this was probably the heyday of Stoneblade. I played Stoneblade at Grand Prix Providence that year, and it was amazing. <laughs> amazing. Yep. Definitely. Uh, it was also, uh, you know, we still see the remnants of it uh, coming off of Cobblade, which was a standard yeah. deck. And it was one of the few instances in history when a standard deck <laughs> made the jump to legacy because that's yeah. how powerful the standard deck was. Right. Uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic in standard at the same time. <laughs> For a minute, they both got banned, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So imagine that, right? So you're playing. Stoneforge Mystic and Jace the Mind Sculptor in your legacy deck, right? Mm-hmm. But you're also playing four Force of Will, multiple copies of Days, four Mental Misstep, and then you also get to play Standstill. So if your <laughs> opponent does try to interact with your Stone, uh, your Stoneforge Mystic when you play it on turn two, then you have like 10 free counter spells that you can draw into mm-hmm. when you're drawing three cards to protect it. Mm-hmm. It's, it was It was not a fair deck. It was not a fair deck. Yep. And I think that's a good uh, transition. Let's take a look at the other eighth place uh, list. Sam Ruckus uh, playing Esper Stoneblade, which is deck he is quite famous for. He is a very famous uh, Stoneblade player yep. uh, and, and still is. Um, his Stoneblade. So, yeah. So the, the, the Esper Stoneblade deck was splashing specifically for uh, Dark Confidant. So they didn't run Standstill in that version. Right. Uh, they used Dark Confidant as the draw engine for it. Yeah. Um, and honestly, looking at this list, minus the mental missteps, obviously, this wouldn't be a half bad list to sleeve up today. Like, this would be a respectable list. So, running down yeah. 24 lands, uh, you know, standard desperate mana base plus running four wastelands. Uh, we have four Dark Confidant, four Stoneforge Mystic, three Vendillion Click. Four brainstorm, three days, four force of will, four mental misstep, four swords to plowshares, one batter skull, uh, four jace the mind sculptor, and one sort of feast and famine. Yeah, I think it's probably jace. a little heavy on on jace for yeah. the modern I, metagame. Um, I would, and it's, it's also a three color deck playing wasteland, mm-hmm. but. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely respectable. It's, it's totally, it's legit. still powerful. And honestly, I think the only reason why we look at this and think it's heavy on Jace is because if you think back, there weren't that many planeswalkers in general printed at the time. Like now we would have like Teferi's or Narsets yeah. and, you know, we would have other planeswalkers fill mm-hmm. those slots and maybe we'd run one or two Jace. Back then, it was basically Jace or nothing. Like Liliana the Veil wasn't even printed yet. <laughs> right. And and I think that one of the important facets of that is that Stoneforge Mystic plus Jace the Mind Sculptor in particular was very powerful because you could either put your Banish Skull back in and search it up, or, you know, uh, you could uh, shuffle away extra cards and then uh, by searching with with Stoneforge Mystic. Mm-hmm. So the two of them worked very well in conjunction with each other, which is one of the reasons it was such a problem in Standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now, at this point, like for four mana, it, it, you you really need to be impacting the board in a much more significant way than Jace typically can, yeah. um, which is wild to say, by the way, yeah. because there was <laughs> yes. a very long period of time <laughs> where you could not do anything better for four mana than play Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah, right. Uh, I remember those days just feeling like a cat playing with my food, like just going like yeah. Stoneforge Mystic, tutor up Batter Skull, Jace, use Jace Brainstorm to shuffle the Batter Skull back in. Next turn, using the Jace Bounce effect on my own Stoneforge Mystic to then replay <laughs> Stoneforge Mystic to find the Batter Skull again and just like gaining all of this card advantage. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do that now because one, there's just better things to be doing over that much, you know, mana and time. Uh, but also I just feel uh, the, the meta isn't as kind of dirtily as it yeah. was back then. I do totally. feel the meta in general was much more dirtily one because the first time, you know, <laughs> the first time I ever saw a Stoneforge mystic and legacy was like a local event in our area when a, a guy that was just kind of like one of those dudes that shows up and pays his five bucks every week. You know what I mean? Like yep. never really had a shot at winning an event or making his $5 back, but he didn't really care. Cause he just wanted to play some cards. Yep. You know me now, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this was 15 years ago. Um, so the first time I saw it, he was playing like effectively like a three or four color, like death and taxes style deck mm-hmm. is all I could compare it to now mm-hmm. and i remember i was playing like counterbalance top in some way shape or form and the dude goes turn one aether vial off of i think a planes and i was just like uh okay because <laughs> dnt yeah. wasn't really a deck at, at that point either right um and so i was and, and you know i like beat this dude every week so it wasn't like i was really concerned about it but he just went turn one aether vial i didn't have a force okay you have an aether vial and then two turns later End of my turn, he vials in a Stoneforge Mystic, goes and gets a sort of like feast and famine, I think, and then vials it in with the Stoneforge Mystic and just never plays another spell for the rest of the game <laughs> as his vial and his Stoneforge Magic just completely dismantled me. <laughs> and I was just like, all right, well, that sucks. Maybe this guy's onto something, though. <laughs> oh that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, let's take a look at one quick thing I wanted to mention. Like, you said this is a much more dirtily format, Jerry. And I wonder, like, and maybe this is get like hitting the na- the the nail on the head a little bit too much, but like with the introduction of a card like Delver of Secrets, that really pushes the envelope for your decks yeah. can no longer be dirtily, right? Delver is such a significant, if super like hyper efficient threat, right? With evasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got great, great power, and like the cards that you build around it, like uh 
really push the speed of your deck, right? It becomes like the Xerox style deck. So do you think that a card like Delver of Secrets really pushed Legacy to becoming a more efficient uh, like, you know, card for card format versus before where you can yeah, play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So um, if you think about it, like as you add more cards into the card pool, there's a certain sense of like entropy mm-hmm. that's going to happen, right? Where like the power level has to increase over time. There's no other way for it to go. You're right. Um, so unless something is taken out of that system by banning or or what have you, um, then it's always going to get more efficient. It's always going to get more uh, powerful and, and mm-hmm. faster. So um, I I know we had kind of touched on this pre-show, but my personal uh, impression of the the dividing line in the history of legacy versus the, I guess, current era of legacy, if you want to call it that, isn't Innistrad so much as it is Future Sight. Mm-hmm. Um, because Tarmogoyf did the same thing, right? So okay, yeah, yeah. Tarmogoyf was really like the dividing point in my mind, again, as an old guy who played pre-Tarmogoyf, where the power level increased. There was a step change in the power level where all of a sudden a bunch of decks that used to be really good are no longer viable. Like mm-hmm. you just cannot play them anymore. And uh, and so Innistrad was similar in that you have this new threat um that really changes the power level of the format and and the i guess at one point we called it the what was a critical turn or something like that i don't remember um fundamental turn of the format it got much faster uh the difference between those two though is that if everybody in the format is playing tarmogoyf they just bounce off each other right, right. like it's it's a it's a ground pound creature that cannot attack into the same creature on the other side of the table mm-hmm. versus Delver of Secrets, which is a proactive evasive threat that you also have to be able to answer as an opponent. And just playing your own Delver, Delver does not necessarily do that. Right. Um, so I think that Tarmogoyf definitely invalidated a bunch of stuff. For example, goblins got kind of awful. Um, mm-hmm. But it also led to a whole lot more dirtling. Because there were just so many matches where you were just staring at a Tarmogoyf on the other side of the table and neither one of you could break serve. So right. you just sat there for a while. Huh. Okay. Um, I think that's a big reason why things like Jace got su- super powerful uh, very quickly, mm-hmm. because now you have an answer that does a whole bunch more than just dealing with a Tarmogoyf. Right. Um, that you can drop pre-Tarmogoyf if, if you've dealt with theirs or, um, you know, you can use yours as a wall to protect it. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think that is definitely true, though, where you have the introduction of this new threat and uh, without without some kind of catalyst to slow the format back down, there's really no coming back from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I do remember this, you know, playing during this time that Tarmogoyf being a defining feature of the uh, the format that. You know, it honestly felt like if you didn't have Tarmogoyfs, you were kind of screwed. And that's why mm-hmm. I became a reanimator player. I was playing mm-hmm. reanimator during this time because I didn't have Tarmogoyfs. I couldn't afford Tarmogoyfs. Uh, and, you know, reanimator was one of the few competitive decks that didn't that didn't need them. You know, I was thinking about that leading up into, um, you know, as I was kind of remembering things to prepare for this podcast today. Um, it's It's insane to me that in in the era where Tarm- Tarmogoyf became uh, everywhere, 
it was like a hundred dollars for a for a tarmogoyf. So you know, just gonna bring this four hundred dollars yeah. for a set of tarmogoyfs was like a debilitatingly large amount of yes. money you pay yeah. for for a magic well, that, card. That's the thing is like and tro- tropical islands were people <laughs> were playing people were playing legacy because vintage was too expensive for them to invest into. Mm-hmm. So you you couldn't afford to play vintage, and people were complaining about the fact that you couldn't afford to play vintage. So legacy was considered to be the quote unquote budget format compared to to vintage because yep. you didn't have stuff like power. That's why I played legacy. That's why I got right. into it. Like me and my friends couldn't afford power, so we played. The legacy price instead. of modern decks today is more than what <laughs> legacy decks were when we were complaining about how expensive Tarmogoyce were. I I remember people. Uh, like we say like Tarmogoyce are a hundred dollars and people are like, yeah, I mean, that's about what a really expensive like chase card would go for now. It's like people, I remember people trading straight up across the board underground seas for Tarmogoyfs yep. it being a fair trade. That was a fair Ooh. trade at that point. Yeah. Like underground sea Tarmogoyf and like people were hesitant because they didn't want to give up their Tarmogoyfs. <laughs> like that, that was the, <laughs> that was what people were feeling at the time. Wow. I bought my house in 2012 and I downgraded my legacy collection in order to put the down payment on my house. And if I had done that this year, I could have bought my house. Wow. It's, it's insane. The amount of inflation that we've seen since then. And now um, you but, can't look back that way because like, <laughs> yeah, you'll drag be dragons insane. there, right? You'll go, yeah. you'll go crazy thinking yeah. about that kind of thing. So I'm not worried about that. I definitely made out better than most people did when mm-hmm. it comes to that kind of stuff. But it's, I mean, like as a, as a player who has stepped away from legacy, I cannot fathom the amount of money it would take me to get back into the format at this point. Yeah. Um, I know this isn't really the right place to say something like that as you try to advise people to play legacy, but the reality is it's an expensive format. I mean, it's an expensive format in an already expensive hobby. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was considered expensive back then, even more so now. So I I think that's important to say, just to kind of talk about the, the mentality that people had uh, between now and then. Yeah. And it's just, it's funny to see things like that. Yeah. I remember very distinctly, like, how upset people were to have to pay as much money as they had to pay for Jace the Mind Sculptor soon after World Weight came out. And it was it was reasonable for them to be upset about it because you know it's a standard card that was going for three figures at that time, which was unheard of. Yep. It was like Bane Slayer Angel was like a $50 card and yeah. people were pissed. They called it Wallet Slayer Angel at the time. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Jace doubled that of what of what the card cost at that time and fortunately we weren't really playing it in legacy when it was legal and standard because it it wasn't quite as good so by the time it got banned in standard you know you could get them for a reasonable amount of money because the standard players didn't want them anymore jace was for me like one of the first like financiers uh card when it came out because I remember jace was spoiled and everyone was like yeah this is a powerful card this is going to see play we're going to set pre-order and we're going to sell them on pre-order at $20. Yep. And that was, and people were like, ah, oh, that's kind of expensive because no one really knew how powerful planeswalkers really were back then. Nope. Well, no, most no people one, didn't. Right. But like Pat Chapin, like famously yeah. was like, buy was all the say, chases you can. Yeah, I was just going to say, price, Pat right? wrote an article and said, buy every Jace you can get your hands on at $20. Yeah. Cause yeah. same thing you're saying is like, that's pre-ordered $20. He's like, Nope, this is, this is ridiculous. And yeah. And I remember Jace being in my mind, the first card to really, really just 
shatter the the glass ceiling of magic finance. You know, mm-hmm. before that, you said there was like Baneslayer Angel, and then I remember like Exalted Angel from Onslaught mm-hmm. Block was another like over overpriced card that people complain about, but nothing to the level we saw with Jace. But think about those two cards, right? You've got a five mana angel that has a bunch of keywords on it. And then you've got a five mana angel that has a bunch of keywords on six, it, right? Six, six mana, mana six sorry. mana yeah. with morph. Yeah. So so those two cards are like big and splashy and they have the like the acroma problem, right? Where it's just like a pile of keywords on a card makes the card expensive. But Jace I guess it's also a pile of keywords on a card. <laughs> it's the first planeswalker that had four different uh like modes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was the first one that broke the pattern of like up down ultimate. Right. So you had this zero ability where holy crap, you can draw three cards a turn off of this thing. Um, and we know how ubiquitous brainstorm is in legacy, so it's like the idea of doing that every single turn, it like, of course it was going to see play, mm-hmm. but at that point, legacy was not a driving factor in the price of cards. So um, it didn't really matter. Yep. Um, before we get too far off subject before, and we move on from the stone blade, I do just want to point out the removal in this sideboard. Cause I find this removal hilarious that, you know, this was kind of the the preeminent removal they had access to. So Oblivion Ring, first of all, mm-hmm. uh, Oblivion Ring used to be like a legit thing that, you know, if you were running white and you needed more removal besides Swords to Plowshares, you know, Oblivion Ring was your catch all. So mm-hmm. you didn't have access to Council's Judgment. Yep. So Oblivion Ring was one of the few ways that you could deal with a Planeswalker or a creature. Um, or, you, you know, like a Sylvan library or mm-hmm. like whatever you needed to do. Um, the threat, uh, I guess, width, like the spread of threats was still wide enough that you wanted kind of a catch-all answer to whatever ails you. Um, the other nice thing about Oblivion Ring is uh, if Counterbalance showed up, the three mana value is a difficult one for the Counterbalance deck to naturally flip. Right. So it was a very efficient answer to Counterbalance. Yeah, especially because um, Entreat the Angels hadn't been printed yet, and that's Correct. one of the few three drops that uh, uh, Countertop had access to. Yeah, it was. it's like four years before Entreat the Angels comes yeah. out. So Miracles then, wasn't a deck. Right. Um, with also Oblivion Ring, I remember there being Oblivion Ring Wars, where people would Oblivion Ring their opponent's Oblivion Ring in order to bring their stuff back. And I remember uh, LSV. Yeah, creating, he famously <laughs> had that unbounded loop. Yep, yeah. He was like streaming on Magic Online or something like that. And uh, he uh, Oblivion Ring and Oblivion Ring. Uh, that was Oblivion Ringing. <laughs> Another Oblivion <laughs> Ring. And he just, cr- he crashed Modo. <laughs> to give some context of how old we are, I think that was before Twitch. Yes, it was. I don't even think it, you're right. It wasn't streaming. It was just like a YouTube video or something yeah. like that. He did pretty sure it was just a video that he posted on YouTube. Yep. Cause streaming wasn't a thing yet. <laughs> uh, so and- um, in this era, I was playing um, the, the deck that I was, that was kind of like my baby that I was working on at the time was a counterbalance top deck that also ran um, Thopter sword. So it was, I was like obsessed with the card Enlightened Tutor. And I was positive that like Enlightened Tutor was the most broken tutor that was legal in Legacy. 
um, because there really weren't that many tutors that were leaving legacy. <laughs> it was the best um, thing of yeah, an almost non-existent yeah. category. <laughs> uh, but it was it was really good in conjunction with countertop because you know you could just tutor for whatever you needed to counter oh, the spell that they were trying to play. You don't need to convince um, me. The number yeah. of uh, Phyrexian dreadnoughts and standstills I've tutored up with Enlightened Tutor is a astronomical figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, in that deck. I was initially playing Stoneforge Mystic as two of specifically to tutor up uh, Sword of the Meek. So you could, you know, if you found your Thopter, uh, your Thopter Foundry, then Stoneforge Mystic got the other half of that combo. So it wasn't necessarily very good for the purposes of like utilizing it the way that Stoneblade did, but it was very good at piecing together this combo. So um, Grand Prix Providence is is coming up and i've been testing this deck for like months at this point and i had like 73 of my 75 like locked so uh i was telling jerry uh before we started this that that tournament was the first legacy tournament after i started writing that was like on the pro level uh you know grand prix level and it was the first time that all of the channel fireball guys from the west coast all flew out for a legacy tournament on the east coast so it was the first time i met most of those guys face to face so i remember walking into the into the tournament hall and they're all like sitting around a table talking about like sideboard options and stuff and i think i might have met david ochoa at that point maybe um, but i hadn't met the rest of the guys so i'm talking to dave and he suggests that they ask me some questions about the format, uh, <laughs> about like sideboard slots and stuff. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I can tell you what my plan is. So I started talking to him about it and, and some questions came up because they're not really that familiar with legacy. Why would they be? Um, so then Pat Chapin asked me to test a few games and I was like, um, yes, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, so we start playing and he's playing Stoneblade and I'm playing like my control deck. And he just asked me straight out. He was like, are you playing Batterskull in your deck? And I was like, no, I wasn't playing Batterskull because that's not really what the Stoneford Mystics are in, in here for. And in like three games, he had completely convinced me to throw out the 75 cards that I had already planned on playing and basically take the, the Channel Fireball deck and just play that deck because it annihilated me just absolutely tore me apart and i didn't even understand what was going on because these guys are so much better at magic than i am and they were just playing at a whole different level and so i ended up scrapping my plan and i played enlightened tutor as a sideboard card and i i ran like a i want to say like a 10 or 12 card enlightened tutor sideboard and just basically ended up running the stone blade deck and I made day two, like it was an awesome deck It's one of the best decks I've ever played in a tournament. Um, but it was just so weird to me that I, I was like coming in so confident in this deck that I had tested and within like an hour of sitting down with the hive mind of the best players in the world at that moment, I was just like, I am a child. I don't understand this game at all. You all have taught me so much in the last hour. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I'm just give me a list and I'll play that list. Yeah, and I think that's what also is very definitive about this era of legacy is it's also when you start to see the uh, the super groups start coming together. You know, we had the internet, you know, sites like Channel Fireball and Star City Games were writing articles and posting deck lists and there was the source and, you know, the internet existed, 
but there still wasn't quite the, um, you know, the team building like discord didn't exist yet. Facebook was not really used in the way it's used now. Right. Um, you know, you didn't have these groups and these cells of individuals testing decks and, and, you know, putting them through the rigors to the level that you have now, where even if you're not on a pro tour team, you st- can still find your way into groups where a lot of good ideas are being shared and probably some of the best ideas are being shared even away from the pro teams. Yeah. So there's, I, I have conflicted feelings about this because I think that uh, my opinion on this has changed quite a bit over the years. Mm-hmm. And part of, I think the reason why it has is because I've had some of exposure to pro tour testing teams at this point. Um, not just in my, you know, my own personal experience, but I've helped some people who have been preparing outside of teams um, or, or outside of tournaments that I'm qualified for, let's say. Um, and, and I think that um, particularly in the early days of legacy, there was a, a the whole format kind of had a chip on its shoulder. The whole legacy community had a chip on its shoulder when it came to pro players, because there was this conception that the pro players thought that they were a whole lot better than the legacy players were and that they were treading a lot of ground that we had already gone over and dismissed. Right. So it's like when you had people d- discovering, and I'm saying that in air quotes, uh, discovering tricks, right. Illusions donate and thinking that that's going to break legacy as though we didn't already know those cards <laughs> existed and said, these are terrible. Why would we play these? Um, so there was a lot of that kind of thing that was going on. And so we we started out from a position where we already thought that we were smarter or better when it came to legacy specifically. It was that the pros. It was that you're coming to my house to right. tell me how I set right. my table <laughs> type deal. Uh, and and I think that the part that we missed during that era is that they were way better than we were. We, we thought because we were familiar with a bunch of cards that we were the experts when it came to legacy. And maybe when it came to like the nuances of the stuff that you found in the dollar bin at your local game store, we were the experts, right? We knew cards that the other players did not know. But when it came to the mechanics of playing the game of Magic the Gathering, we were outclassed at every turn. Like there Mm. were just not that many people who were dedicated to the legacy format that were playing at a level that warranted that kind of ego. And and so like, it's exactly like I said, right? It would have been really easy for me at that tournament to go... Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I'm I'm the guy that writes articles about this every week. Why would mm-hmm. I listen to you guys who were asking me questions 10 minutes ago, right? But it was so obvious when you actually sat down and played with these guys that they understood things on a level that you just did not. And there's a reason why they can pick up a stock list of Canadian threshold and run a table with it at a Grand Prix when they've never played Legacy before. Mm-hmm. And it's not because their cards are better than yours are or that they've unlocked some piece of the metagame. It's just, you know, they understand the game of Magic at a level that most people don't. And it's just it's pretty e- impressive to watch. Just the efficiency and tempo and all these ingrained lessons. And yeah, I watched I watched a match during that Grand Prix. And this is like, <laughs> it's locked in my mind, right? Um I was I was 
sitting behind or I was standing behind Paulo Vitor Damodorosa. He was playing um, like Bug Landstill. And he was playing against uh, this kid, Nick, who was a local player in my uh, legacy scene, who's been playing legacy since he was like 12 years old. And at the time he was like 17. Right. So he's he's still a young kid, but he understands the format. He's he's one of the guys that we tested with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was playing vile goblins. And it should have been a very easy match for goblins to win, because traditionally that is not a hard matchup for him. And I remember that in game three, Nick opened the game with Leyline of the Void out of his sideboard. And uh, I think that it was LSV that was standing next to me, leaned over to me, and he said he just lost this game. Whoa. When he opened with Leyline of the Void, he said he just lost this game. Whoa. <laughs> and it turned out that it was basically he was like the damage of one card down at the end of that game and it's why he lost the game wow and i was just like how did he see that like i i just <laughs> the the comprehension was like so far beyond what i was prepared for that it was just baffling to me um that's amazing but yeah so um you know we've talked a lot in a, in a roundabout way about this kind of stuff but you're right like this was this was the first time this era was the first time when there was enough on the line for attention to be given to the format in a, in a serious way, right? This was the heyday of the star city games weekend circuit when Mm -hmm. every Sunday was a legacy event. Yep. Um, And, and there was enough money on the line there for the attention of the people who were competitive players in more than just legacy to pay attention and try to develop the format. So you had Jerry Thompson breaking the format like every other week, he was the um, first, first, and I think still only person to to win both the standard and the legacy back to back. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that they even. I mean, I know they're not doing it now, but yeah, you know, um, they they kind of stepped away from legacy after a while. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like he went from broken deck to broken deck to broken deck, and it was like, wow, Jerry's breaking the format every other week when the reality is like he was just exploiting things that were already there that Mm. just hadn't been refined to the level of his capabilities Mm. to that point. So that's Mm. where, and this is kind of part of this era prior to Innistrad as well. Right. When, when uh, mystical tutor got banned in no small part because Jerry broke it in reanimator. Yep. Um, I think that was like the prior year the whole format just felt raw. Like all of these deck lists exist, but they were still very much like the F and M version of the deck list. And none of them yeah. had really been once over by anyone with any sort of, you know, real super high level, uh, you know, magic, uh, acum. And it, once they, the pros got their hands on these decks and started refining them, that's when you yeah. start seeing these cards get banned. you know, thing, things start to happen. Isn't that what happened with the modern pro tour? Like the, uh, this was like uh, maybe like four yes. or five years ago, like the, the pros hadn't really played modern, uh, like at, at this kind of level. The, then there was a modern pro tour and they just like completely destroyed the modern format. Yeah. So that like was actually, afterwards. it was a world's it was. Okay. Okay. It, yeah, yeah. So um, it was the first, it was the first pro level tournament that modern was played in and the format was very new Mm -hmm. like they they had announced the format they had like a very 
tentative ban list that did not include that many cards. And they said, we're going to let the pros break this format and we'll, we'll shake it out afterwards. And that's when like the, um, like Sam Black put that deck together that used um, Niv Magus Elemental with like storm cards mm-hmm. to basically just like kill you on turn two over and over and over again. <laughs> um, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff got banned after that tournament. Um, <laughs> and then if if you remember, I think it was like the next modern pro tour after that mm-hmm. is the one that the Channel Fireball guys crushed with Zoo plus counter spells. <laughs> so you know it it far cry between the two formats at yeah, that point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Speaking of, I want to take a look at this coming in a uh, third place in this tournament. A much lamented deck, uh, pretty much six feet under. Uh, good old Zoo. Zoo was still a deck in this meta. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it, you know it's. I think the the idea behind this Zoo deck is really interesting, and it and it only works in this specific format <laughs> <laughs> because. Every other deck was like, we've got to play around mental misstep. And this zoo deck was like, nah, screw that. We're only playing one drops. <laughs> yeah. This zoo deck, this zoo like, deck's Let them counter our stuff. We got four more one drops that are overpowered right behind it. Yeah. It's whole, it's whole basis is basically they can only run four. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you only have four <laughs> mental missteps. <laughs> so yeah. It's got four goblin. So for people who don't know, because I'm actually, there's probably a ton of new, newer legacy players who don't even know what zoo is. But zoo was a, uh, you know, red, green, white, creature-based burn deck that basically just try to overwhelm their opponents got four goblin guide three grim lava mancer four kid ape uh kurt younger brother <laughs> so the very first zoo decks were like lions and tigers and bears right it ran savannah lions it ran mm-hmm. uh kurt apes um and it ran a bunch of like two twos for two right like orcish uh man i don't even remember the name of them anymore um so it it was it was a very efficient like red green and i don't even think it had white at the time um like aggro deck well it had white for uh savannah lines yes i'm sorry you're right uh obviously uh so that that's like the zoo right is you've got all these animals that are all in, in the deck um but what it really boils down to is it's just a bunch of undercosted efficient creatures that are played out very aggressively and backed up with burn and or some kind of removal um, path to exile, obviously um, pre pre path to exile. It pretty much just ran burn burn. It can't run source to posh airs. Um, but, but yeah, this one, uh, I mean, as you were saying, goblin guides, grim lava mancers, lava mancer was very present in decks that could use red uh, because it was so efficient at dealing with Stoneforge mystic Kurt uh, apes, loam lions, which are pretty much just Kurt apes. Quasali Pride Mage was very prevalent at that time. Again, perfect for dealing with batter skulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tarmogoyf's Wild the Cattle. Wild the Cattle was really the hallmark that kind of made uh, the zoo strategy good. Uh, the the combination of fetches and duels made it very easy for that to be a three three on turn two. And as we know, three power creatures on turn two are extremely good. To, to also like just to you know hammer home how important wild nakato was to this meta when delver was spoiled people called it a blue wild nakato they sure <laughs> did <laughs> that is how they referred to it it's like oh it's a blue wild nakato because wild nakato is you know this this hallmark creature in this deck and 
Delver really, I do feel was the, the nail in the coffin for zoo, because why would I play wild Nakato? That's green when I can play Delver that's blue and back it up with dazes and force of wills. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you get to play brainstorm and you get to play brainstorm. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, then it also finished it out with like three chain lightning four lightning bolts for lightning helix, which is funny seeing lightning helix in, uh, in legacy these days, uh, the path to exile, like you said, it can't afford the life gain that sorts of plowshares has, and then two Sylvan libraries to, uh, kind of power out some draws if they start to run low on gas, but yeah, I, I miss zoo. I kind of wish zoo would come back, but I just honestly don't think it can exist in legacy today. Like I just feel legacy as a format is too efficient for just a deck full of creatures. Mm-hmm. Like I would honestly say probably the closest thing we have to zoo these days is Eldrazi. Mm. Yeah, that might be true. Um, you know, any kind of like aggressive creature deck makes me feel like it's kind of zoo ish, but even zoo is, is, I mean, yeah, the th- the threats are just too different now. It's like just just running a bunch of creatures at the board and hoping that they stick. It, it just doesn't feel like it's it's what you want to be doing. Yeah, which is a shame because you don't really often get to uh, sleeve up, you know, red, green, white as a color combination. <laughs> no, but no, say la vie. That's that's yesteryear. So yeah, there were there were a couple of decks that were um, very prominent at this time. Um, Stoneblade obviously was kind of the top tier at that time. Um, the the green decks that were what we would normally consider to be like the threshold style or the rug style, uh, you know, um, Delver style decks. Um, most of them were a little bit more uh, mid range, partially because Delver didn't exist, but also because uh, one of the hallmarks of that time was still natural order for progenitus. Um, so a lot of times you'll see like rug order or bant order or you know that kind of thing. The order is referring to natural order. Um, this is not very long after uh, the conflux release put noble hierarch into the format. It's like within a year or so, and uh, and that really changed the dynamics of the Tarmogoyf mirror. So when you have the advantage of attacking with the Tarmogoyf, when you have the Noble Hierarch, their, their Tarmogoyf can't block it efficiently anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really, really changed the dynamic of that matchup. And so uh, the combination of that, plus the fact that now you also have this ramp creature that happens to be green, um, as well as like you can green sun Zenith in the deck now. So you can find Dryad Arbor and you can find Noble Hierarch. Um, it, it, appealed very nicely to adding natural order into the deck. And then progenitus was just the best threat that you could natural order for at the time. Yeah. Um, so those, and, and again, Merfolk was kind of there. It was floating around here and there uh, at the time. Um, but for the most part, like that was the format. It was like Stoneforge decks, Tarmogoyf decks and Merfolk decks were like the hallmarks of that, of that era. And then everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, there were there were a couple of really cool decks in the Grand Prix Providence top eight that ended up um, kind of changing things for a long time after. Yeah. Uh, one of them was Brian Eilet. Uh, 
I actually played this guy in day two and he crushed me very soundly. Um, he was playing show and tell combo and it was, it was not the show and tell combo that we're used to seeing. Um, this was actually the uh, hive mind. The, I was the show and tell hive mind combo deck. I'm glad you brought that up. I was just going to mention it. You know, this yeah. is back in the hive mind days. Yes. Yep. Sorry, go ahead. So for anyone that's not familiar with it, hive mind is a six mana enchantment. And it says whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery, your opponent copies that spell and then they can play that copy or, or change targets for it or, you know, typical copy a spell thing. So they would use show and tell to put hive mind into play. And then the next spell that they cast was typically like Pact of the Titan or Summoner's Pact, which your opponent typically could not pay for on their turn. So you would play Pact of the Titan and they would get a copy of Pact of the Titan. So you would both get a 4-4 Titan and then you would say go. And if they don't have five mana, including a red, they die. (laughs) Um, And then as a backup plan, you could also just show and tell in Emrakul. So... Uh, that deck was like revolutionary at that point because show and tell hadn't really been a deck up until then. It was, it was one of those things where people had tried to figure out how to make show and tell for Emrakul work. And it was sometimes like sideboarded in reanimator. Um, I put together a deck at one point that was trying to use it um, as kind of like a backup plan for using hideaway lands to put Emrakul into play. Um, but, but there were, there were not a lot of successful attempts at making that combo work. This was like the first time that, that it really had kind of taken off and and done well in an event. Uh, it wouldn't be long after that, that sneak and show became a thing. And then at, at another point in time, not in the far distant future, uh, like the omniscience show and tell deck became mm-hmm. a thing, but, uh, that was also short-lived, but, but yeah, that one was really, really impressive. Um, just came out of left field and, and an interaction that a lot of people weren't aware of. They didn't really understand how, how it was set up. And so a lot of people got taken by surprise by that one. I, I remember there being so many judge calls when yeah. Hive Mind first got popular because also it's just really interesting in the way how counter spells work when there's a Hive Mind in play. Because Hive Mind copies every spell, right, including counter spells. So people, so people go like show and tell, and then they go like Hive Mind, and their opponent's like, uh, yeah, okay, that's fine, whatever. And then their opponent goes, you know, Pact of Pact of the Titan or Slaughter Pack or any any of the packs, right. and their opponent just goes, oh, well, I'm just going to uh, to force of will your copy, and they're like, okay. It's your copy that kills you, so that's fine. <laughs> so they're just like right. yeah, that resolves, or, or rather, not, like you would try to force will the copy that you're making. Yep, and, and then, then they, they get a copy of your force will, so they yeah. counter yours. <laughs> yes. So it was what was actually really interesting about that is that it it led to a lot more soft counters getting played. So like spell pierce became a lot more prevalent at that time, yeah. and um, and Days. I think people even tried to play mana leak, but it was really more of days and, and spell pierce because. While you couldn't force a will your own copy and make it work, you could daze your own copy, choose not to pay for your own days, and then pay for your opponent's days, right? So <laughs> th- their copy would resolve. You pay the one, and then your copy resolves, and you say, well, I'm not going to pay for it. I want my counter- my copy to be countered. You still got to deal with a 4-4 on the other side of the table, but at least you're not dead to the pack trigger. Um, yeah, just a really strange interaction that, that worked. And uh yeah. The other the other thing that was interesting was that um, counterbalance didn't get around it. 
because the copies put on the stack it doesn't it doesn't get played so there's no cast trigger for your copy so you can't counter your own copy with with um, oh yeah that's right i forgot about that (laughs) and then Uh, the other deck that was really cool about that uh that tournament was there was a top eight um wilson hunter top eighted with painter grindstone I was going to say we saw a fresh face Wilson Hunter in top eight here. Yeah. Oh, Young boy. man out of Boone, North Carolina. Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting take because most of the painter servant decks that had been played up to that point were either in like a mono red shell or they were in a, um, I guess, more of like a uh, like a blue black, um, like more combo oriented mm-hmm. uh design here and and he he played a blue red version that used transmute artifact as one of its um like intuition targets i guess um which was it was kind of cool um i was i was very impressed with this list you ran lawan cephalid empress in the sideboard i know that was that was definitely (laughs) like a tech card at that point um you bounce all of the blue cards or blue creatures your opponents control, and then your opponent can't play blue spells. But since Painter Servant turns everything blue, you just bounce their board and they can't play anything ever again. Yeah. It's pretty and he, sweet. And he got that because it was a it was a fairly common sideboard card in that era, just because Merfolk was because so of Merfolk those right. days. It was yeah. like it was like a wrath of God for Merfolk. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah. It's actually funny. So the link you provided us here, Adam, is I'm glad uh, Wizard still has this up, but it's actually the write-up they did yes. for Providence, which kind of makes me sad because it's so much better than the write-ups we get for modern day events. Which yeah, is the write-ups sad. are actually pretty sweet. There's pictures and like little stories. Like, and... yeah, really well done. Definitely yeah. awesome. But they have uh, the top five cards of the tournament. Number five was Stoneforge Mystic. Number four was Hive Mind. Number three was Dryad Arbor. Number two is Green Sun Zenith. And of course, number one is Mental Misstep. If you go to the day one coverage page at the top of that and you start to scroll down, you see the Legacy Roundtable and you will see a familiar name as the second character in the Legacy Roundtable. A spry 28-year-old Adam Barnello was interviewed prior to this tournament uh, on, on what decks we thought were good. And then also, as we as we scroll down in round two, I actually had a feature match during this, this tournament. Nice. I was one of those wonderful players that didn't have three buys, so they needed somebody that they could <laughs> do a feature match coverage for. Um, I played against Pascal Maynard. Oh, uh, nice. it was like maybe the second time Pascal and I had played against each other. And uh, I somewhat famously, at least I consider it to be famously, played two lands in the same turn. I played one before and one after a Jace activation and then got a warning for it. And then on the very next turn, made the same mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> I was so like nervous yeah, because I felt like I had so much riding on it at that moment. You know, it's like, this is the first time that I've been interviewed by the mothership page that, you know, Brian David Marshall is sitting right next to me, like writing up the match as I'm playing it. And I'm just like, not prepared for that level of like pressure at all. Uh, and so I just, I screwed up terribly fortunately <laughs> pascal was playing a garbage garbage build of like a blue white merfolk deck and i i got very lucky to beat him in that match so <laughs> it, it came away with me not looking terrible but it was like man i i was very nervous very nervous for that 
to make you feel better, Adam, uh, around this era, I was also playing in uh, in this uh, was this GP boss or no, this is GP Providence. I was this playing. Yeah. I was playing a legacy side event in this uh, GP GP Providence, and I was playing Reanimator. And my opponent got in my head and was just such a dick. And he was like, he was trying to tilt me off. That's <laughs> like he was trying to win the game by basically making me tilt. And he was succeeding, and I fetched. And I, I fetch search by library and then put my deck back face up. So like the bottom of my deck is facing up. So I just have exposed cards up and then like draw off the bottom of my deck without realizing it. Oh no! <laughs> just like during this whole big judge call, but it's okay. I ended up crushing him anyways. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best feeling. Yeah. Uh, I, one of my favorite magic memories. Um, I do in this uh, write up, I want to read the paragraph they wrote about mental misstep because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so, mental misstep. Here it is the elephant in the room. This card has seen so much hype since it previewed in New Phyrexia. Uh, it was set up to either fail or succeed wildly. After a weekend of play, I'll definitely say that it has been a success. It has changed how many things in the format work almost single-handedly. It has slowed down the format and made goblins significantly worse. It has forced many blue decks to react to the fact that it even exists by playing it as well. It has given combo decks another weapon to try to protect their combos. Now that the dust is settled, I'll call the experiment success, <laughs> though I'm sure it will level off as the metagame adjusts itself in the future. <laughs> yeah, that, that card lasted for like a month after this tournament. It got banned like, literally like a month later. Narrator's voice, it did not. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is someone who is writing for Wizards trying to like be as be as politically correct, as kind as possible. Be like, oh no, this hasn't this hasn't just completely warped the format. Yeah. Was it really only a month that mental misstep last last oh a month after i mean this, a month after, after this, this tournament after yeah. this tournament yeah that makes sense i remember it it, it pains me because i picked up a play set of mental misstep i think i paid i paid 36 dollars for a play set which was absurd for an uncommon <laughs> in the imprint like like not even like like a couple sets old. it was it was the new set <laughs> like it was it was whatever i was drafting and it was like uncommons for like six to eight dollars did and you I, buy foils jerry or were they just regular no nah, they were just regular but okay. uh they got banned two days later <laughs> <laughs> on friday night before the tournament started um that's when i was like testing with all of those dudes from channel fireball and uh and dave williams was trying to buy my beta duels off of me because he just wanted to play with beta duels like he was like i i'll just give you money for him and i'm like no man i i I don't really want to get rid of these right now and so like basically he just kept trying to buy all of my expensive cards off of me um and i was very proud of the fact that i went to the last vendor that had a foil mental misstep (laughs) in stock and i paid seven dollars for it before anybody else could snag it (laughs) because no one had mental missteps at this event it was like dealers brought like a hundred of them to the tournament and sold out before the tournament started like no one had them in stock i remember people were cracking packs looking for them like that's how much it was and it honestly it works out like you can get a pack for (laughs) 2.99 where the mental missteps and uncommon for you know seven eight nine ten bucks yeah like if you buy a box of uh, of new phyrexia like between the batter skulls and the mental missteps, like you were going to get whatever mm-hmm. you needed uh, value wise out of it to make it worth it to find the mental missteps at uncommon. 
so yeah there was there was a lot of that going on too um but yeah so mental misstep got banned and uh and then the format kind of like settled back into like some sense of reality for a minute before innistrad came out (laughs) changed everything all over again changed everything (laughs) all over again and with that i think that is a a good place to kind of wrap up this installment of uh of legacy history <laughs> we talked a little bit about the the metagame that was going on right before right before Innistrad got released but there's this is such a deep pool of of topic i mean yeah. like it, we we basically talked about like a 3 month time frame right. but there's there's a lot a lot to dig through prior to that you know like um <sighs> Flash wasn't that far before this. You know, you know what I mean? Like Adam always wants lot. to talk about Flash. I do. It's, <laughs> it's it is a snapshot in time that can never be replicated again. And I'm so glad that I got to play during it. Oh, that's awesome. So we'll definitely have to continue this uh this series. This this episode's been a ton of fun, and we literally only talked about like a three-month stretch of legacy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so if you guys like this stuff, you want us to do more, definitely let us know on the Facebook page. I can already tell I have a feeling this is gonna be one of our more popular episodes. Yeah. Uh, I had a blast. I'm sure you guys did too. Yes, absolutely. You know, I always have fun coming and talking <laughs> to you guys. Hell yeah. Well, let's get into scoops and poops, Jerry, before we wrap up tonight. Oops. Gary, who do you want to scoop in a top eight this week? Uh, I am going to scoop in my brother and his lovely wife because this weekend uh, I became a uncle again and we we welcomed in my uh, my nephew into the world. So awesome. nice. scoops into them. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats to them. Thanks. What about you, Adam? You got scoops this week? Uh yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna plug here for a second. Um so I'm going to scoops Lux Bidet. They're a company that sells bidet attachments for your toilet. <laughs> I am, to my knowledge, I am the only magic player sponsored by a bidet company. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. So I have an affiliate link. You can get to it in my link tree, which is linked in my Twitter. Uh, and you can uh, give me a little kickback. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in, in buying a bidet attachment for your toilet or more than one, uh, I can give you some recommendations on which ones will fit your budget. They're very affordable. The base model is like less than 40 bucks. They're, they're super affordable. And, uh, and I can potentially give you a 10% off coupon as well. Ooh. So reach out if you're interested. Hey, bidets are, bidets are environmentally friendly, right? They're better, they're better than wasting a bunch of trees. There are very few things in life where you can consider it to be like a step change in quality of life. Like the first time you have a dishwasher mm-hmm. is like, a life change like you can't go back right the first time i used a bidet i was like this i i i'm a fool <laughs> why is it taking me this long <laughs> see i just i just uh pay pat to use a super soaker that's, yeah uh, that's fair too <laughs> yeah jerry just bends over and just wham, wham just get the double barrel super soaker in there the one the old the old school backpack one <laughs> We just remodeled our bathroom and I sprung as part of that remodel for like the highest end bidet that you can get from the company. It's it's like it's electric. It has a remote control. It has a seat warmer. It has LEDs for like a nightlight. It has an air dryer. It has heated water. It is like the Cadillac of bidets. I was going to ask about about heating the water. I was going to ask about heating the water because. Most of them run off your existing line, which is yeah. just cold so water going to your tank. There's most of them are are cold water only, and and 
it doesn't bother you as much as you would expect, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you'd think, oh man, a blast of cold water up the bum. But, Your nerve endings don't really sense it as much as you would expect. Well, also, there. like it's probably a nice cooling sensation after you've been ripping, ripping you know, the, if, into if the bowl you've got for a, a yeah, especially after one, uh, like, Taco, Bell. Taco Bell. Right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's nice cooling sensation. But they actually make models that have hot water in them too. So I have one in our in our one of our guest bathrooms um, that the, it runs from the hot water line of the sink. So I had to put okay. a hole in the side of my uh, of my vanity yeah, and yeah. then run the hot water, hot water line there. Yeah. Um, and that's really nice. You know, um, that one actually uh, is a little bit better control of the pressure. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that one for certain <laughs> times of, of my life as well. Um, but but the other one, the, the, the expensive one that we have is actually electric. So we when we did the remodel, we actually installed an outlet behind the toilet specifically yep. for that reason. Yep. Um, so it, you electrocute yourself. I'm sure they're AFCI or GFCI protected. Jar. Yeah, sure they're, they're GFCI pressure, yeah, protected yeah. for sure. Um, and then there's another there's another fuse inside of it in case you know that one fails. Or yep. But yep. but yeah, so it has it has uh, heated water like on demand heated water. That's fantastic. It's That's really fantastic. Dope. Yeah. I've actually uh, so I'm I'm gonna be remodeling our bathroom probably in the next six months or so. So that a bidet is definitely on the Hit list of up, things man. that I want. I will I 100 will. My wife and everyone in my family who I told I'm getting a bidet thinks I'm insane, and I've told them <laughs> you guys have never experienced the joy it your, is to have your a wife clean ass. is missing out. Like 100. It's it's. It's got its uses for men, but like, I, I honestly feel so it was my <laughs> wife convinced me to do it. Right. Like she was like, I think we should get a bidet. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds kind of weird. I'm not really into that. Literally sounds, the first sounds time French to me. Well, it was like <laughs> at 40 bucks. I was like, I can't really say no. Right. Yeah. Like worst case scenario, I just take it off. Cause it's dumb. But it was like the, the literally the first time I used it, I was like, there's no going back. Yeah, there's yeah. no listen, going back. Listen, men, men get hairy asses and like you can't clean that with a toilet paper, man. You just like you just do your best and you give up and say, well, I'm good. I'm taking a shower late today. I guess I'll get it then. Just imagine but, you're like out working on your car and you come in and you just dry your hands off with a paper towel. Right. right? Like how clean do you really feel yeah. at that point? When you're done using the bathroom, you wash your hands, right? You don't just dry them off on a That's towel right. like a fucking monster. That's like, right. Wash your ass, man. Like it's not. I think I, I think I might have even <laughs> tweeted this recently, right? Like toilet paper is terrible for cleaning your bee hole, but it's pretty good for like drying it after yeah. you've washed it. Yep. So yep. like, why wouldn't you want a bidet? Yeah, hundred percent. I bet 100%. you guys did not expect to have a bidet conversation. No, I didn't. I didn't think we we're gonna have as part a, of this. I'm, so this I'm, this fits in the scoops me, and in the poops. Yeah, you're, you're, you're selling me. I think I'm gonna get a bidet. <laughs> well, let me know. I've got an affiliate link. Sick. Sick. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm gonna say I'm gonna give a scoop into Brian Rawlings. He's our uh, newest uh, patron on our Patreon page, uh, and he just got a, a free education about bidets available from our from our wonderful guest. So, uh, <laughs> shout out to and scoop in the top eight to Brian Rawlings. Thank you very much for the, for the support. If you want to support the show, obviously you can do it on Patreon.com/slash Leaving a Legacy. And that's it, man. Hell yeah. You need a pioneer a new deck, Adam, and, and name it the bidet. And just like it's a new new archetype. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's like the newest high tide version. Is yeah, we need bidet. to figure out what. <laughs> oh, man. Look, if they could call the old one permanent waves, we can call it bidet. Right. <laughs> I also no. I also feel like it would be like high tide, but it it, uh, it uses cascade as well. You know, got- why not submerge? Submerge. <laughs> oh yeah, it's got to run. We're just gonna. Gush. Yeah, actually, it should be a vintage. I'm just gonna put gush. together a bidet themed deck. And, <laughs> and whether it's good or not, I don't care. <laughs>
<laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thanks for coming on this week, Adam. It was great to talk to you, man, and catch up and, and yeah, talk about this this period, this time period in legacy. Yeah. So once again, people let us know if there's another time period you want us to talk about. I know there was some requests for uh, you know, pre-Zendikar. So, you know, before we got the full set of uh fetch lands printed, mm-hmm. uh that, that was an interesting time. Flash Hulk era, which is Adam. For so long, <laughs> the biggest like running thing that people wanted was enemy colored fetch lands. Yeah. For so long. And then they did it and everyone was like, now this what? was a mistake. Now what? <laughs> So let us know what eras you want us uh, to talk about and uh, we'll, we'll run it back. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Adam. Thanks for having me guys. Always a pleasure. All right, everyone. Catch you all next week. Thanks for hanging out. Bye.